Good afternoon, everybody. This is Mason Wilson from the Worm to the Boardroom podcast. I'm your host. I'm currently Global Business Strategy Operations at Google, Combat Veteran Duke MBA and West Pointer. Today, I have my guest, Mr. Michael Burns. He and I will be discussing his preparation to transition, transition to corporate DEI and the entrepreneurship space. For those that don't know, Mike Burns is the managing partner of Burns Brothers. He's an advisory board member for South by Southwest, co-founder of Service First. He's also an aviator, so an Apache pilot, the head of West Point uh, Diversity Admissions, former head of diversity at Citibank, head of transformation for Conduit and its call centers. He's a graduate of West Point, the University of Notre Dame Mendoza School, and Columbia University's executive and organizational coaching program. So without further delay, Mike Burns. What's up, Mayshawn? So great to be here, brother. Thanks for having me. It's amazing how the years fly by. Remember when I, I was there? The, the days to where you were just a cadet sitting in my office to now look at you doing big things and uh, I get a chance to sit on your podcast. So appreciate it. Definitely, definitely. So, Mike, for our listeners who don't know, you know, tell us a little about yourself. Like, who are you? Where are you coming from? How did you get to the military? Gotcha. So my name is Mike Burns. Currently, I'm the president and managing partner of a full-service multicultural agency called the Burns Brothers. Uh, before that, as you probably heard from Mishan, I've done a whole bunch, like a lot of the people Mishan's already had on the podcast. But I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas, so I'm a Texas boy by trade. I was raised by a father and a mother who were both entrepreneurs, so I've had entrepreneurship in my blood, uh, and then decided when I was taking and choosing the track to high school that I would go to actually a military high school. So I went to a school in San Antonio called Texas Military Institute, which was the school that Douglas MacArthur actually went to high school hmm. at. Uh, but before that, no real interaction with the military, even though San Antonio has tons of military installations. Uh, and went there and fell in love with the concept of like uniforms and marching. Uh, but even then, I didn't want to do the military, right? I wanted to go to somewhere outside of Texas, thought NYU was cool. And so I was going to go out there and check out NYU and got told by my JRTC instructor to go and check out the school called West Point. And didn't even know West Point was a college. I knew there was an Army-Navy football game. But I thought that was the real army playing the real Navy. I didn't know there were like colleges associated with it, but went up there to visit, checked it out, loved it. Uh, and really the rest is history. Served for 13 years as an Apache helicopter pilot. Nice. And uh, were you, were you, you were a baseball player while you at the academy, right? Yeah. Well, I initially came to play baseball, uh, decided that wasn't what I wanted to do, uh, that it was more of a job than actually fun. Uh, and then ended up doing a lot of time boxing at the academy and, just hanging out and, and trying to tread water and not drown with all the tough academics and all the other demands. And so where are you now, Mike? So you mentioned your managing partner, Burns Brothers. Can you explain, like, especially for our, our military listeners who're not really sure, what exactly does that mean? What do you guys do? Are you guys like PAO? Are you guys more like, you know, uh, EEO? Like, what do you guys do? Yeah, so that's a, a, a big question, right? And actually, tax, where where am I now? I'm in my house in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. So no one's ever heard of Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, but Waynesboro, Pennsylvania is at the intersection of Maryland, Virginia, excuse me, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and uh, kind of West Virginia. So you can get to any of those states within probably like 10 minutes. But the most important thing, it's about 60 miles from my office in Washington, D.C., but I'm coming from Manhattan. So I was in Manhattan for about 15 years before I moved to Waynesboro. But to answer your specific question about the Burns Brothers and what we do and 
We actually do a little bit of, of everything. So we started off about two and a half years ago, strictly in the DEI space. I ran diversity, as Mayshan said, uh, for City, had done diversity work for West Point. So diversity was kind of in my blood and I found passion in people. And so I knew I wanted to do that. And during the time of COVID, during the time of social unrest, I was running enterprise transformation for a large Fortune 500 company called Conduit. And while I was doing that, I realized, you know what, like managing real estate is not going to change the outcomes for my two little black boys so that they wouldn't be facing the same stuff that we were watching in that eight and a half minute video uh, with George Floyd. And uh, during my time there, like during COVID, during social unrest, I said, I got to do something to make an impact. So I called my brother, who was a managing partner. He was a lawyer of a, a pretty large law firm in D.C. and said, do you want to go out and change the world? And uh, about a week later, we dropped our notice <laughs> and started the Burns Brothers. And when we started, it was strictly around doing diversity work, helping companies understand their diverse populations better so they could really make insightful uh, change based off of true fact and understanding. But now we've grown to where the Burns Brothers is just more of a holding company for about six other sub brands and sub companies that they have their own leadership teams and identities. Uh, one of the brands still specializes in diversity, equity, inclusion. It's called Koi Collective. We have another brand that focuses on multicultural communications and marketing and advertising called Manchester Park. We have another brand called Styled, which does a lot of large event productions. So we do huge events uh, for organizations such as Amazon and Johnson and Johnson and NFL. Uh, but we also uh, have a branch of the organization that focuses on celebrity speaker series and, and philanthropy called Icon Talks. And we just launched a members only house uh, in Washington, D.C. It will officially open on April 1st called HQ. And uh, that's a curated house of really top tier leaders in every industry, uh, but normally people of color, because we felt there was a place that high level, high achieving people of color needed to come together and just be able to decompress and be. And so HQ serves that purpose. So it sounds like you're, you're a bit of a master of all trades. Uh, and a no, jack doing all of them. They got a good team. So I'm just a master of uh, finding really, really smart people. Uh, but everybody else uh, does the real hard work. So nothing's changed in admissions, you know. <laughs> nothing's changed. Finding talented folks just in a different capacity. Absolutely. And so this this um, collective, if you will, that's similar to like Soho House or the Gathering Spot, or is it different? Like, what's the? It's 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 think of it more of it, it, it's structured more like a Soho House. So it's, it's multiple floors. Each floor has its own identity. So like one floor, what we call the lounge. So if you just want to go in there with a friend, grab a beer, drink a cocktail, bring clients watch some news and sports center, you can do that. We also really are big into wellness. So one of our floors is dedicated to wellness. Uh, so we do a lot of celebrity yoga, spin, meditation out of that floor. It's almost like a white box. It also serves as an art gallery. So we bring in uh, artists, uh, people of color who are artists, and we display their artwork. We sell their artwork. Uh, and then the fifth floor is what we call our penthouse. And so uh, it's, the it's the top floor of the building. Uh, it has amazing views. Uh, we have an eight by 16 inch our LR, yeah, six, eight by 16 foot LED wall uh, where we do movie previews. We just did a Creed three uh, preview uh, out of there a couple of days ago. But but once again, every floor is a space, no matter what the identity is, to where people who are successful, people who usually spend a lot of their time pouring into others can kind of come 
be poured into, be pampered, be taken care of, but more importantly, kind of just be and 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 be authentic in a space with about four to five hundred people just like them. And so, when you left the corporate space, like, did you imagine like this is what you would be doing several years later, or was this kind of like a journey into itself? Nah, man, you know me, man, Sean. I kind of like go with the flow, right? I'm, I I consider myself. I love business, right? And the general rule of business is find an opportunity, find a problem and create a solution that can fill that problem. And so I've able, been able to kind of navigate to different spaces because I'm able to identify different problems. And then, like I said, assemble teams and people who are probably smarter than me to help solve uh, that problem. So I would have never, if you would have asked me like four or five months ago, if we were going to have a members only club, I would have said no. If you would have asked me Two years ago, if I would have had multiple brands under the umbrella of the Burns Brothers, I would have said no. Uh, but we saw the need, we saw the opportunity, we saw the problem, and we thought we could create the solution. Who knows what we're going to do in a year from now? It might be something different. I mean, it's it's cool to see your journey, Mike, especially like going from like all of these like Fortune 100 companies to like now you're out here killing it, doing your own thing. But you know, of course, no no surprises. No surprises. I appreciate you, brother. And so can you talk to us about like how you got here, like, you know, talk about your last job in the military, kind of decision to transition and kind of how those experiences prepared you to kind of pursue this path? Absolutely. So 13 years in the Army, the last job uh, was the head of diversity admissions for the academy. By far the most rewarding jobs. And I've had a lot of rewarding jobs in the Army. I had a chance uh, to do the first wave in Afghanistan, do the first wave into Iraq, work with just amazing people, not only in the uh, green uniform, but also uh, Iraqis, Afghanis, international forces. So a lot of amazing jobs, a lot of amazing people, but never did I have a chance to interact with people who I just thought were some of the best and brightest like I did at West Point admissions and create opportunities. Like I said, I came to West Point, not because I knew what West Point was, because I had somebody who knew what West Point was, who thought West Point would be good for me to recommend me go. And so when I was running admissions, it was a big deal for me, not just to help, you know, all these young kids who might be in inner city Chicago, in Oakland, right, who might be in upstate Maine, right, who had no idea this opportunity existed called West Point to like present this opportunity to them. So they had at least on their list of things that were possible. I believe that the more opportunities you have on a list, uh, the easier life actually is. So I wanted to present that opportunity. So that made that job rewarding. But what made it also just as rewarding is working with all the cadets, right? Like being that black officer that all the cadets could come to and we could shut the office door and they could just kind of let loose. And while I was there, I actually wondered if like any of the cadets went to class because they spent more time <laughs> actually than going to class. But it was just so nice. And now seeing like people like you and seeing Devins and Robs and so many others like Nolfins, like all these people who were just doing amazing things. And I knew them when they were cadets trying to like navigate and thinking that maybe I had something to do with their success makes me feel good. So by far, West Point the best job I've ever had. That makes sense. So in going from that job where you loved it and like you thought about leaving, you know, can you tell us about that process? And before we dive into that, you know, I really want to thank you because it was people like you and Heist Gibson and Rance Lee where I was like, 
oh, this is what I should be as an officer, like, you know, get after and then come back and pour into the community if I get the chance to come back. Oh, man, you make me blush. Appreciate you. Um, so, yeah, if you could tell us about that, right, like, hey, you know, I'm at this job, I'm in the academy, I'm loving it, I'm engaging cadets, what made the decision to pivot, especially the 13-year mark, compared to like, oh, well, like, I'm post-command or like, I've hit that initial commitment, why that juncture? To change direction. I mean, it's, it's a great question. You know me, so I'm going to give you an honest answer, right? Might not be the most politically correct answer, but it's going to be my authentic answer. So at 13 years, and, and anybody who knows anything about the military knows that you kind of change jobs every three years. So it came time for me to look for whatever's going to be next in the Army because I was coming up on my three years at the Academy. And I was, at that point in time, no longer designated as an Apache pilot. I was actually PAO. And so during my time at West Point, I had really plugged in with like the New York City PA office and had really got my feet entrenched in, 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 in New York and D.C. And so I wanted to go out and do PAO for the Army uh, for some of those cities. I thought my, my experience at the Academy, because I think West Point's probably the most a billion job you could have, but still be in uniform, right? So I had made all these amazing relationships and connections that I thought could be really good for the Army inside the PAO space. And so as it came time for me to look for my next job, uh, oh, and by the way, my wife was working in New York City, right? She was working for an organization called Morgan Stanley. Uh, she was actually traveling back and forth to Brazil. And so I needed to be somewhere to where I could be with her. We could have more of this family dynamic and I could provide value to the army. So I was looking at these PAO jobs and my, I think, I don't know, they're not my, I guess, branch manager. Mm -hmm. I'm out. My branch manager, the person who decided what was next for me was like, nope, even if you by name requested to go to these jobs, you're not going, right? You're going to Fort Polk and oh. it's no offense to anybody who went to Fort Polk, but you're going to like Fort Polk. And it was like two other options that in my book weren't really options. And so at that point in time, it had been 13 years. So I had seven years before I could retire, but I'm big on if I have a certain amount of value for myself and the organization doesn't have equal amount of value or doesn't see that worth, then it doesn't matter how long I've been in. It's time for me to separate, right? Because I'm going to place more value on myself than anything else. So I went to my boss, who was the head of admissions. I said, hey, this has been a great ride. I love the Army. I love people who serve. But right now, I need to do something that's for me because I see this misalignment. She signed the paperwork. And uh, about like two months later, I was, I was out processing of West Point, trying to figure out exactly what I was going to do. So didn't know, but I knew, I didn't know what I was going to do, but knew for sure that there was a misalignment on values and I would never be happy and I would never be able to deliver my best self to the army because of that. So that was the, uh, the, the critical kind of fork in the road kind of moment that made me go and leave the army versus doing something or staying in the army. It's very helpful. So literally a lot of soul searching of like, you know, what do I value? What do I want to be known for? And from there, you know, how can I contribute either to my next organization or to things that I find valuable in the type of family dynamic that I'm looking for? Yeah, um, and, and, that's what I, and that's what I believe to my core, right? That's why I do the work that I do, because I see so many people of color specifically, they undervalue themselves, right? They let other 
people create the narrative for them of what they should be, what they can do, where they should go. And I'm like, no, forget that, right? Like I, I came from, like I said, like two parents who were entrepreneurs, but especially my mom was like a strong black woman, like from Mississippi, right? Small town in Mississippi. She ended up creating the largest like black owned, forget black owned, the largest pediatric practice in the state of Texas with another black woman, right? So I grew up seeing like black people that wore, you know, their pride on their chest, right? I saw, I grew up around black doctors and black lawyers and like black people who were just doing big things. And my mom used to always tell me that you never let anybody determine your worth and your value. If you're at a table, no matter your title, your rank, your level, you have a voice. And so some people call it egotistical, I mean, I just call it just being sure of who you are. So like for me, that was always really big. And that's what I really try to instill. And so when that came, that situation came up in the army, it was just misaligned with who I truly was. And but ultimately worked out because it led to me doing the work that I do and pouring into people and helping people as well as people who are actually trying to discover themselves, but also people who are interacting with people who are trying to discover themselves, see their value. That's a good point. So how do you balance saying that that identity, that self-worth piece, kind of that soul searching with kind of the fear of the unknown, right? Because right, you often hear the refrain of like, oh, well, you're 13 years in, you should stay for the next seven. We know it's not the best, but you're this close to retirement. How do you kind of reconcile those two or help people negotiate that challenge? So I used to have this quote on my wall that said, a bird never has to worry about a branch breaking because it knows and depends on its wings, right? It never, it, it's so sure of its ability to fly. If a branch breaks, it doesn't really matter because it will just fly away, right? And so for people who are trying to balance, right? And it's such a good question. At the end of the day, it all comes down to how much confidence and how much I hate to use the word value again, but value you put on yourself, right? If you have confidence in yourself, it doesn't matter if it's 13 years or, or 25 years or two years, right? If you're confident in yourself, if you have a plan and recognize your skills and know how you can align those skills, which are usually malleable, like you can do a whole bunch of stuff with like, comp, with like one or two skills. Like if you recognize those things, you're sure of yourself, you exude confidence at all times you show respect and empathy, you effectively communicate. Like if you can do those basic things, then you can almost accomplish anything in the world, right? It doesn't matter if you're going to financial services. It doesn't matter if you stay in the military. It doesn't matter if you go to med school. Like you can do all of that stuff if you have that level of confidence. All great points. Um, So that's what, that's kind of what I would recommend. Figure out what your confidence in, build that level of confidence and be unapologetic about it. And, and then everything else will kind of work its way. In your transition process, like when did you start thinking about that transition? You mentioned, you know, you were out in two months. And so when did you start like, hey, you know, I was six months out or was it a bit shorter than that? Oh, there was, there was zero thinking. Right? <laughs> I, I'm uh, As you can tell just from this conversation, you know me really well, right? Like I'm a very like passionate, emotional human being. Right. And and it goes back to that whole confidence thing. I don't do a lot of assessment. Once I kind of know when I make my decision, I I know. So when I got off the phone with my branch manager and he's like, yo, you're doing these three things. 
there was no like, go home, let me think about it. Let me talk to my family. It was like, okay, uh, boss, here's my paperwork. Like within an hour kind of span to, to get out. So there wasn't a bunch of, because I just knew I wasn't going to be happy. And I, and I, and I, and it really rubbed me the wrong way that my value wasn't seen. So I don't do that. But same with the Burns brothers, right? Like I was on the phone call with the CEO and the CFO of Conduit. And we were talking about real estate downsizing. And and George Floyd's murder was happening over and over in loops. And the two pictures of my two little black boys were behind my computer monitor. And I hung up the phone and I called my brother. And when I asked him that question, like I said, the next day or the next week, I dropped my notice. I, I reached out to a couple mentors and, of course, my wife around that decision because it was a bigger decision, but it still wasn't one that I like contemplated for an extended period of time. Me and my brother were having a conversation in late October of 2022. And I was at a Starbucks and we were talking about, is there a way to monetize like our networks? And we said, oh, what if we opened up a members only club? And now we're like two days into March and we are opening up a members only club, right? It's just, we're just doing it, right? Just because we think we should and we think we can. Yeah, watching you make something else. It's it's interesting. It's very, very cool. And so based on that, like where where are you trying to go? Like you're doing this thing, you're doing the entrepreneurship, you're impact communities you care about, you're doing exciting ventures that you know most people can't fathom. Like what's next? I mean, at the end of the day, I love people, right? And and I think people are the most precious gift. Uh, that God has given us. And I think there's this divisiveness in the world that has been created from so many different sources, whether it be media, whether it be how social media aggregates information and sends us and feeds us exactly things that confirm with what we want to believe. Like there's, but, but this whole divisiveness has created these lenses that we look at each other through of, of, of just complete difference versus commonality. And so because I love people, because I understand the power of people, like I think my purpose on earth is to help other people better understand and better engage, as well as helping people that look like me better appreciate uh, who they are and, and what they bring. So I don't know exactly what the next part of the journey is, but what I know for sure is it will involve people. It will involve driving deep levels of understanding for individuals as well as for individuals with others. Uh, and it will be tied to like making things that possibly may be uncool, cool, right? My brother and I, we, we love that, right? So diversity was not cool, right? That there was literally nothing cool about how diversity had been presented. And I had talked to my brother when we were making this Burns Brothers decision and said, I want diversity to be like hip hop, right? You don't have to convince a 60 year old white man to hang out with Jay-Z, right? Like they wanna hang out, right? Like, and, and so we need to create diversity in a way and present diversity in a way that the majority who we need to be on this ride want to be there, right? Because they, they just want to be surrounded with whatever this diversity thing is. And then by doing that, then you actually win. So whatever we do, whatever we touch, we're going to do it different. We're going to make it cool. We're going to make it sexy. Uh, and by doing that, we're going to bring a whole bunch of people together, which will ultimately create change. That's about as much as I can give you for where we're going. But you know, we talk next year, it might be a completely different space, but I guarantee that will be the common thread.
I think those are great points, Mike. Um, in terms of diversity, you know, would really love your take here. Given where we are in the diversity space, that usually, you know, we have these initiatives, they sound great, we have these commitments, but it comes across as very performative, superficial, or we talk about diversity of thought versus like actually material diversity. How do you get companies or chief diversity officers to really make that jump from the action and performance to the commitment and action? Yeah, no, I think it's it's great. I think that one of the biggest issues with diversity in my book is it's been counterproductive because the messaging has been counter to what they want the outcome to be, right? So when you do anything that creates or designed around kind of segregation and segmentation, right? So everything from, you know, focusing specifically on affinities, right? So we're going to focus on women. We're going to focus on Blacks. We're going to focus on veterans. We're going to focus on people for the LGBT community. You automatically give people an opt-out, right? So if I'm not in that group, then this is not my thing, right? And so then it becomes this like singing to the choir, reading from the same hymnal thing to where all the Black people are together and they're talking about things, but you need the other people that aren't the Black people like in the room as well to drive the change, right? So I think that's one issue with diversity is like the inherent like segmentation of diversity to where that brings and, and presents counter messages and allows people to kind of say, well, I'm not in those groups. Therefore, it's not my bag. Number two, I think it's been based way too much around kind of like theory, right? As well. So, and, and, and around topics that are, will do not kind of invite participation. So in the Burns Brothers, we will never do anything on anti-racism. We will never do anything on privilege. Like we'll never do anything that becomes like triggers for people, right? Because diversity itself is starting to become a trigger, right? You go into organizations, you start saying the word diversity, everybody's like, oh my gosh, like I don't want anything to do with this or, oh gosh, another diversity training, right? It's, it's, it's like compliance training now. Like no one takes compliance training serious. No, we've gotten to the point where no one's taking diversity work serious because they've just been bombarded with it. Ours being positioned in a way that makes them feel really, really bad about themselves or go on the defensive, right? So once again, you got to position things in ways that you're going to get the largest amount of adoption. So when we present things uh, for from the Burns Brothers' points of view, our perch, it's always presenting concepts. We might present a concept like privilege, but we will never say privilege, right? But by the time we get finished with it, You'll you might not recognize it as privilege, but you've been taught about privilege. I use a uh, an approach. So I have I you know you know this mission. I have two boys, right? I have a six year old and I have a nine year old. Both of them get incredibly motion sick, right? Family trips are just nightmares when we go on them because you're just mad. It's like a ticking time bomb of vomit. You're just waiting for something to throw. So what we wanted to do is we used to always want our kids to take drama mean which would minimize, hopefully, that reaction. But they hated Dramamine, right? So if you gave my oldest like Dramamine before it even touched his mouth, he'd act like he couldn't handle it. What we learned that we needed to do is we needed to find something they liked, right? And both of them liked applesauce. And so what we would do is we would actually crush the Dramamine up in applesauce. And we'd be like, oh, let's have some applesauce. And then they would eat the applesauce 
but at the same time, they'd be taking the drama main, right? And then we'd still get to the end state of making it at the end of the trip with nobody throwing up. That's how we do diversity, right? I got to find out what people are comfortable with, what people like. And once I find that, then I sprinkle whatever I want them to actually ingest into that, right? Versus me determine what I want them to and then just force them. And if they reject it, just say, well, you just couldn't handle it, right? So that's the approach that I think if more diversity folks took the applesauce approach and really figured out what the people on the other side could consume and actually enjoy and then sprinkle what they, what, what they were trying to get into that, we would still be at the same end state that they initially wanted to have, but maybe in a way that they weren't, it wasn't their original way to do it. So that was, that's kind of the, the other thing. And then the final thing is, this is really a big one for us and for me personally. It's all about behaviors, right? At the end of the day, you change culture through behavioral change, right? And 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 so, uh, I, whenever I talk to people, I always wonder how old people are. You can, you can, you can relate with this analogy I'm about to throw out. Maybe, hopefully, some of the younger cadets or other people who might be watching this might not be able to. But there was a movie called Karate Kid. It's now come back in like Cobra Kai on Netflix. But in Karate Kid, uh, Mr. Miyagi used to teach Daniel things like paint the fix and wax the floor, right? And by the time he actually was doing those behaviors, he didn't realize those were going to teach him how to block a punch or how to block a kick, right? So if we actually focus on the behaviors, so if I want you to be an ally, uh, how about I teach you how to actively listen, right? Versus conveniently hear, right? So if I can teach you how to actively listen and what does that mean and what does it look like and what are some of the examples? And we just, we just through repetition, just go through active listening, and then I tack on a different speed, skill or behavior. Over a period of time, you're going to be an ally, right? You're going to have the skills and the competencies that exude the behaviors of an ally without me having to give you all these frames of allyship and what this means, because that's not going to create anybody to change. And so that's also some of the things we think, especially in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, focus on the behaviors, reinforce the behaviors. It's not about the end state. People don't need to know the end state. They just need to know the behaviors and ultimately they will become whatever we want them to become or whatever outcome we want in the DEI space. That's a lot of deep thought. It, the closest analogy I have is like, you know, you're taking, you're giving medicine to a dog and you put it in the peanut butter, just thinking like, yeah. they'll actually eat it. Otherwise it's no dice. Um, and so along those lines of like executive communication, can you talk about how do you navigate those spaces specifically as a minority as a black man, whether it's, you know, in the army where you're influencing generals or it's in these corporate DEI spaces or as an entrepreneur, like how do you show up one and like, what are some of those challenges that you've learned to better navigate with time and experience? So the first thing is I'm always consistent, right? And, and once again, you know me just as well, if not better than most people, right? So you're going to get the same Mike Burns no matter who you are, right? No matter if you're a general, no matter if you're a private, no matter if you're a janitor, no matter if you're a CEO, like you're getting this guy right here. And I'm going to tell you how I feel. I'm going to tell you what I think is awesome. I'm going to tell you where I think there's areas of opportunity, but I'm going to be unapologetic about it. So I think that's kind of like foundationally what's going to be critically important for everyone. You got to be authentic and true to yourself. Like chameleons are not a good look whether it be in the army or in corporate America, because people who are leaders, people who are making all the decisions and controlling P&Ls, they're looking for people who are sure and strong. They're not looking for people who are waffling and one day they get this mic and the next day they get that mic. Like that's just not it, right? So 
That's the first thing is like, just be sure and stay consistent in who you are. Number two is if you're not a good communicator, you got to figure it out, right? Communication is everything. I know at West Point, you know, we had like the whip we and we had all these other things. I know the whip we is no longer, right? But we had all these things where they focused on communication. And we as cadets would be like, yo, this is BS. Like, what are we doing? But like communication is absolutely key. And I think one of the great things about the army is how it reinforces the need to be succinct, to be clear, to not make any assumptions around what people understand. Like that's really, really, really important. So communication, both written, but really verbal. And never leaving anything up for kind of speculation or assumption and the communication. And then I think the third thing, at least for me, is like assemble like a team and and, and both a team in like your professional career, uh, but also a team in like your personal. Like people who are going to be completely honest with you and tell you, yo, like, Mike, you're really going off course. Uh, this, have you really thought about this? Maybe this isn't the right time. Like people are going to be honest with you. Uh, you need those kind of people to just bounce ideas off of kind of use the sensing boards, uh, to a degree. Uh, but if you're stay true to who you are, uh, don't waffle. If you truly find that kind of sensing board, uh, and then you can communicate effectively and passionately, uh, and persuasively, then you're, you're, you're good to go. Uh, and, and, and it's been great with navigating. I, the first job I ever had out of the army was running diversity at city. <laughs> I was, and, and also you gotta be a little, a little, uh, naivete, right? I, I think not knowing what you're getting into makes you a little bit braver to get into things. So when I went to city, I'm a, I'm a director, right? There's like, like the next highest level in the financial organization is managing director. And this is like my first job ever running diversity for one of the biggest financial institutions in the world. And my only real diversity experience was running minority admissions at West Point, right? But I'll never forget it. Here's a good piece of advice tied to your question as well. So people are like, yo, how did you get this job? Right? Like with no experience. Once again, I recognize what my skills were. I recognize what I brought to the table. When I got into all the interviews, and I had to interview with every global head of every business line. So you're talking about these people who are making multi-multi-million dollars a year. The head of the investment bank, triple Harvard guy, good friend and mentor now, Ray McGuire, right? Like everyone in the organization is scared with him. I'm the head of the Jane at that point in time, Jane Frazier, who's the now the CEO of City. Uh, she was like the head of Latin America uh, for City. So I'm interviewing with all these people who are just like titans. And I'm this, you know, senior major, transitioned out of the army, right about to work. And, and I go in there and I say, and, and part of my, my, my pitch was, I was like, you know, if you're looking for somebody who understands financial services and can crank a model, I'm not your guy. Right. So let's just lay that out right now. I'm not your guy. But if you want somebody who understands people and understands organizations and understands how people, if you really tap into them and position them and understand them to actually drive organizational effectiveness and, and, and drive organizations forward, then I think I'm really your guy. I think I do that really, really well. So I just want to get that out of the table just at the very beginning before we started this conversation. And that's what I said with all of them. Right. And, and it made me rememberable. Because if I went in with, with stats and data and how I see diversity, 
the next guy or gal that came in after me, like I would be forgotten because they would say the same thing. But I had I had my own kind of pitch. It was based off of who I was, what my skills were. I wasn't trying to pretend that I was something else. And then one other thing that I did is I figured out how to connect with them, things that they cared about. Right. So I did my research on all of them before I got into any interview. And I didn't research, you know, I did like the LinkedIn and see where they went to school and all that stuff. But that wasn't what what mattered. I looked to see what did they get. I, I listened to their speeches and like the things that they cared about. So I knew Ray was really a huge like Chicago Bulls fan. Right. And I knew that the head of markets had two daughters. Right. And so I started talking about things like that, things that they were emotionally connected to. Not data, stats, DNI, all that stuff. And when I emotionally connected with them, it brought their guards down, which made me seem more of a person, a colleague, a potential friend than somebody who was just going to be a DNI guy. And so when I got in there and took the job, they felt a lot closer to me, which means I had more influence uh, to get them to actually create change that I wanted uh, when I was in the shop. So really leveraging now your your skills with people, but also your emotional intelligence to really read that room and that audience to build those connections and to have that immediate impact to influence without authority, which is really important once you leave the uniform behind. Yes. Yes. And if you can recommend a book, I always like recommending books. There's a book that ties exactly to what you said, Nishan. It's called uh, it's called Switch. Uh, it's by two brothers, uh, Chip and Dan Heath. I can see you're nodding your head, so you know. And so you know, Switch is all about how do you switch or change the mindset of an individual and organization. And it talks about elephants and riders. And if anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're not a reader or you're trying to figure things out, I highly encourage you to read Switch because in the book, it says that people are basically two parts without any spoiler alerts. As they're elephants and riders, elephants are emotional sides of the human being and the riders are analytical thought provoking side. The elephant will always outpower the rider because we are emotional creatures. And so it's important that if you wanna create any change or have any impact, you have to learn how to control the elephant first. And then once you control the elephant, then the rider, with data and stats and all that other stuff can kind of guide it where it wants to go, the elephant wants to go. And so that's why the Barack Obamas and Donald Trumps, that's where they win with change and make America great versus politicians that lead with laws and torts and all that stuff. It just doesn't kind of like, that's not going to cause people to go out to the poll and actually take action. And so one of the things I definitely encourage to all of your listeners is figure out how to make that emotional connection with the elephant, control it. And if you can do that, then like 99 points, you have like a 99.9% like probability of actually getting what you want. I could always count on you, Mike, to come with like great professional books and recommendations. Some re-recommended Switch. The other one was like Jim Collins, Good to Great. And those are the ones that stuck with me the most. Any other books and podcasts that come to mind where you're like, wow, like that idea, that concept is like what you need to understand to negotiate this world. Oh man, uh, so many. Uh, there's a new Adam Grant book out. Uh, well, I guess not new anymore. It's out a couple of years ago, and uh, it's it's I can't remember. But the last it's the last Adam Grant book. So if you type anybody types Adam Grant into uh, into Google, it's it's his latest book. But basically, inside of that book, it talks about the cycles of human beings and how they think. Uh, it says that human beings book or something. Think again, think again, think again. Perfect. And so, have you read it? I have not, but I've seen it. It's on my list. 
So, so think again basically says that human beings live life in two cycles and they bounce back and forth between these cycles. One cycle is called the overconfidence cycle. One, cy- one, one cycle is called the rethinking cycle. And most of us as adults, as professionals, as anyone who's been in a space for a long time, live in this overconfidence cycle. And it's one that's rooted in pride, saying that we as human beings are prideful creatures. And when you're, when you're a prideful creature, there's a lot of things that you're convicted in. Right, we're convicted in our political views, our sports teams, our states that we're from, our business units, our projects. Like conviction is all around us, and when you have this conviction, you spend a lot of time trying to confirm what you're convicted in. And the only way you can confirm what you're convicted in is to go out and validate it. So you interact with people who think like you. You watch news channels that say the same messaging that you believe. You filter your social networks to where they only feed invalidate what you want. But the dangerous thing between validation back to the pride point is the more validation you sprinkle on that pride fire, the larger the pride fire gets, the more convicted you get in your ideas, the more time you spend confirming. And so this is like a cycle to where you never grow and you actually can regress sometimes. So what Adam Grant says is to go over to that rethinking cycle that's rooted in humility. And if we're humble, then it creates this healthy sense of doubt. And when you have this healthy doubt, it makes you curious. Right. And if you really try to fill this curiosity bucket, the only way you can fulfill the curiosity bucket is to go out and discover, which is different than validate, because discovery means I got to interact with someone who I might not normally interact with. Now I have to watch a news channel that I normally wouldn't watch because it has different perspectives that just make me kind of cringe. Now, Now I might have to have conversations that might be uncomfortable for me. But the more you discover going back to humility, the more you realize you don't know and the more humble you become. Right. And so that's a cycle of like real growth. And I think if more people spent time in that cycle, we, the world would be much better. But the last thing I'll say on that is we have to recognize that we can't spend all time in that cycle either, because then that's like analysis paralysis, like nothing ever happens. So we just got to figure out what is the balance between moving from that overconfidence to the rethinking back to the overconfidence, because any cycle could be dangerous. But unfortunately, we spend way too much time in that overconfidence. So that's my other book recommendation. Highly recommend Think Again by Adam Grant. Mike, you always have the good recommendations. It made me rethink about my life a little bit, little, just a little bit more. Um, and so looking at your transition journey, whether that's out of the military, um, through your jobs, can you think about like anything that you would change or do differently? And this could be the planning, could be the last assignment, benefits, uh, transition timing, location, career field, anything that you would change or do differently? Yeah, one thing, right? For sure. So my mom used to tell me, especially when I was in the army and especially my time at West Point, she's like, Mike, you're establishing all these great relationships and all these amazing people. Think about it, Mayshawn, like as an outreach, like the people you engage with, we're on the Hill, you're talking to members of Congress or get access to, to CEOs and senior executives. And she's like, Mike, like you need to you need to nurture those relationships. You just can't let them like perish and 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 dissipate. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like I really wish, and and hindsight truly is 2020. I wish I would have listened to her. Like I wish I would have nurtured some of those relationships. I wish I would have poured into like people a little bit more during some of my earlier years, uh, because those relationships are everything. Schools matter, 
GMATs matter. Uh, all that stuff matters, but nothing matters more than relationships. If you want a job, to be honest with you, the reason I got the city job is because my life's mentor at Morgan Stanley, a dude by the name of George Van Ansons, who's now one of my like senior mentors that I bounce everything, he was like the man on Wall Street. He's been on Wall Street forever, right? And so I called George through Heather, my wife, and said, hey, I'm thinking about you know applying for the city job. George is like, okay, apply for it. You make it through round one, then I'll make some calls. He made it, I made it through round one. I came time, I talked about Ray McGuire. George had already called Ray and said, yo, this is brother Mike Burns, like army guy, I vouch for him. And so when I got in the room with Ray, Ray's like, yo, George has already called me. You're good to go, right? But that was all relationships. That was all relationships. And it wasn't even my direct relationship. It was Heather's relationship. But I think it, it hammers home the point that it's all about who you know, not necessarily what you know. You got to know something, right? Because you're not even go anywhere if you don't know something, have basic skills, basic you know uh, points that people will vouch for you for. But like if I could have continued to curate and cultivate these relationships, who knows what social capital I would have right now. So that would be the one piece of advice because it truly is power. Those are, those are great points. Uh, and so along those lines, when you look at your transition, not just out of the military, but also through these various roles, do you feel like you would have gotten to this entrepreneurial state where you're like making this DEI impact if you hadn't gone through the corporate experience? Like, is there any way to fast track or streamline that process? Or was it all a necessary part of the journey to get where you are today? I think all of it's part of the journey, right? Like we all know sometimes where you skin your knees is the best learning, right? Some of the most painful things, things that like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? Such a waste of time. Uh, there might be a more direct route. Like those are like the best points of learning. I don't know if 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 COVID was like the trigger of me being an entrepreneur. I don't think it was COVID. I think it was more of like that social unrest piece and just being ready. Like, Michelle, I'm like you, right? Before the Burns Brothers, I probably had like a dozen businesses, right? I've been like a serial entrepreneur since I was in West Point, right? Like trying to sell stuff at the academy, right? So like entrepreneurship's always been in my, my blood. It's in my DNA for my family. That's all I ever saw, right? So working for somebody my whole life was never the end state. That was never the end game, right? Even at the most senior levels in Fortune 500 companies, I've been reporting like CEOs when I was in Fortune 500 companies for like a long time. So, but it still never fulfilled me because it just bothered me to have to like get someone's permission. So I was always going to be an entrepreneur. And I also thought I had really good ideas that could pour back. So COVID wasn't it. Social unrest was kind of that trigger for me to, to pull out and, and do my own thing. But I will tell you, if it wasn't for Conduit and I, Omar Ritter was on here and he gave some kind of insight about the experience, Conduit was, if you weren't at Conduit, you would never understand. Like it was interesting for like a better term, right? It was painful some days, but some of the, like the lessons, like being a chief of staff of a fortune 500 company, running a billion dollar P and L like just the, the amount I learned about business at Conduit that I now use for the Burns brothers, invaluable, right? Like my CEO, who's now a friend and a mentor, like I used to hate some days working for him. 
right? But the way he ran the business and the way he looks at things now, I'm like, I see myself almost like you, you're, you don't, you can't relate with this, but now being a parent and seeing myself and my mom and my dad with my own kid, like I see the way that I run my company and some of the behaviors, which I used to look at it with him. And I'd be like, why are you doing that? But now I get it, right? Like the army, like the organization and like the, the understanding of people that the army produces, like would not trade that for the world. I would not trade for the world the suck of sleeping in an Afghani desert or an Iraqi desert under my helicopter with solar showers that we bought from Walmart before we deployed to, to Iraq, right? Because it taught me a lot about myself, but more importantly, it taught me how to motivate people when there was little to motivate them around, right? And you need that in corporate America. You need that when you're running the companies. How do you get your people running and moving even if they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel? So like every step along my journey of life has informed how I do what I do now. And I'm sure the Burns Brothers will just be a stone which will inform something else that I do in five or 10 years. So I do not regret anything. I appreciate and value all of it, especially the points that were hard and and kind of sucky and didn't land where I wanted them to land. I think kind of the last piece in terms of like translating that leadership where, you know, it's you're in austere conditions, you know, hostile environment. How do you translate that leadership into management, especially when you're dealing with the different motivations, different mission, different compensation and different skill levels? That's a really, really, really good question. So I think one of the greatest things about the military is not necessarily the diversity from an ethnicity or gender standpoint, but the diversity from a, like a geographic and like background and experience standpoint. I mean, you know this, like people who you led are from every corners of the United States and sometimes outside of the United States, right? Some are rich, some are poor, some have parents who served in the military, some have parents ate the military. Right. It's just so many different reasons why they're there. And if you want them to do really, really crappy things, you have to kind of understand that reason. Right. And motivate and cultivate that reason to get them to drive forward and then figure out how then do you get them to connect with the reason of the other person and a kind of performance or team based fashion to drive to the organization objectives. Corporate America is not much different. Maybe there's less like diversity of geography and things like that, but everybody has their own reason, right, for being there. Like some people, and even inside the same organization. So we go to city, like investment bankers have a completely different reason for being there than ops people, right? Uh, an investment banker who's a managing director has a completely different reason for being there than an analyst, right? Like everybody has a different reason. And so if you really want to be a great leader and have those skills transfer from the military to corporate America, it's all the same, right? It's still all people. And how do you tap into the reasons that that manager director has to be there? How do you tap into those and and use those to motivate him or her and drive them forward? And then how do you tap in in the same organization to that analyst and find out why they want to be there and then help that manager director also understand that analyst and why they want to be there so now they can actually more effectively work together. And so I think that was, for me, the biggest common bridge uh, that I could bring from leadership in the military that has helped me be effective in corporate America. I think all, all amazing points, Mike, because 
it is an adjustment. And if you're not ready for that and you think that, you know, knife handing it, as some people would say, is the way, you know, you'll run into some challenges. So just curious, you know, especially like coming from a director, someone's an entrepreneur, it's always good to get that take. Last piece, you know, we covered a lot of great things from communication to professional reading. Are there any like parting notes of wisdom that you would share with our audience? You know, veterans that want to follow behind you to be that entrepreneur, to be that chief diversity officer, you know, what would you recommend? Yeah, uh, uh, just a couple things. Number one, figure out what your passion is, right? And then once you figure out your passion, figure out what your skills are, right? And then figure out where your passion can leverage your skills, right? And, and if you find that point of intersection, then that's your point of power. And you don't have to worry about a job description. There might be a job description that matches that. But if there's no job description that matches that, figure out how to create it yourself, right? As long as you create what you're creating is driving to a need that a person has or a problem that needs a solution, then that's where I think success can happen. And I think a lot of times with veterans, especially, they don't they don't recognize either or know either. They don't know their skills, nor do they know their passion. And so they just jump out of the world and then they let the world dictate and tell them. And, and, and it's funny, Mishan, we're going back to the very beginning of our conversation. The world dictates and creates their own narrative and creates their brand for them. And they just live in that cyclone or that narrative that's been created. But I think if they're able to really spend some time before transitioning to really figuring out what their passions are, really figuring out what their skills are and finding those point of intersection, it allows them to own their brand. It allows them to own their narrative. And by default, I think it increases the chance of them being successful and happy and fulfilled when they leave. I think one of the best lessons I learned from that Jim Collins book the hedgehog concept, you know, where do those three circles align between God-given talent, passion, and like economic opportunity? Because that's yep. where you thrive. Um, and, and, and one point to that, right? And then I'll, I'll definitely be done. Is that you can have passion, but without skill, passion doesn't matter, right? I'm incredibly passionate around basketball. I do not have the skill to be an NBA player. I can't dribble. I can't shoot. Therefore, I will never be an NBA player. I can have the skill, but without the passion, it doesn't matter, right? I can have all the handles in the world, have the best J, but if I don't have the passion to actually go out there and hungry to get it, then I'll never be an NBA player. But if I have the passion and if I have the skills, then you have Kobe Bryant, right? Then you have the LeBron James of the world, right? And so that's also an important point. You got to have skill. You got to have passion. Uh, but you can't, if you, if you don't have the ability for one to supplement or feed the other, then it doesn't work. We appreciate all those nuggets of wisdom, Mike. So uh, if our listeners kind of want to connect with you and learn more about your story, you know, you know, where can they find you either on social media, you know, what companies are, are you working on or initiatives or, you know, books or articles you're working on? We would love to, to learn more. Yeah. I mean, the best way to find me is uh, my Instagram handle is at Mike M. Burns. Uh, so a lot there. And then if you follow at the Burns Brothers, uh, you can link with all the other sub brands, which kind of shows things that we have going on, uh, me, my brother, and the rest of the organization. And then the only other thing that you can probably find me on is I have a, uh, a military-inspired kind of jewelry and support company uh, called Service First. Uh, we tell the story of service through jewelry, and we work with West Point and other organizations of creating amazing jewelry. Uh, you can find me there, and that's at Live Service First. But 
Mishan, I appreciate the time. Whenever you need me, uh, you know I got you, but thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the podcast, Mike.